This podcast is generously sponsored by the Pillar Network. The Pillar Network is a community of like-minded churches that are doctrinally aligned so that they can be missionally driven to plant and revitalize churches together. That doctrinal alignment comes around six DNA. They are committed to gospel proclamation, being Bible-based, to live expository preaching, to churches that are elder-led, confessionally baptistic, and kingdom-minded. Reach out to them today at thepillarnetwork.com, thepillarnetwork.com. Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Welcome to the Baptist 21 Podcast. I'm Nate Aiken, your host for the Baptist 21 Podcast, where we have conversations about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century. Uh, And this week on the podcast, we're going to do something similar to what we did last week. Uh, We're actually going to hear from Clint Darst. Clint has been on several podcasts in the past. He's been on conversations about uh, recapping and reviewing last year's SBC. In addition, we've had him on the podcast to talk about Believer's Baptism. And so this week, we're going to hear from Clint on the topic of raising up lay elders. Now, uh, there's been obviously years in in Southern Baptist life where elders were not really uh, something that you saw in Baptist uh, churches, but uh, historically there have been elders in Baptist churches. In fact, uh, W.B. Johnson, the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, wrote a um, uh, wrote a book on elders. And so uh, this has been historically something that marked who Baptists are. Uh, we would, most, most Baptists would argue for a elder-led but congregational uh, church government. And so uh, we're going to have conversations about uh, what it means to be elder-led, but also to be congregational. We've done that in our What It Means to Be Baptist series in the past. But this week on the podcast, you're going to hear from Clint Darst, uh, a talk he did on raising up lay elders. And, and even more than that, you're going to get a lot of thoughts on discipleship and how do you pour into men that you think will be able to help uh, lead and equip the flock. And so it was a really, really helpful talk on kind of the sort of men you're looking for, how you're trying to pour into them, what you're kind of hoping to 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 form in them as you think about them, helping you bear the burden of, of lead the church. And so I think uh, it's a very, very helpful conversation. So we're going to hear from Clint Darsh, Clint Pastors in, uh, in Greensboro. He's a church planter, a pastor, uh, and again, somebody who's been on the podcast. And so I think you'll benefit greatly from what he had to say uh, in, in this talk. And so uh, we certainly appreciate you listening to the Baptist 21 podcast and hope this will be really beneficial for you as you think about discipleship, leadership training, uh, and elders in the life of the local church. I assume most of those claps were because this is the last session and you're like, get on with it. Let's get home. We want to see our families. I always say on these kind of trips, they're always rich. It's always a joy to be together. But the best part of these trips uh, is getting home. Uh, back to the family. And so I know you guys are ready to do that. i uh, excited to do that as well. Let's pray, ask for God's help, uh, and then we'll jump in. Father, we come to you in the name of Christ, our resurrected and reigning Lord, and by the power of the Spirit, asking uh, with, with hearts uh, expectant that you would be pleased to answer. Continue to give us wisdom. You tell us to ask. We're asking for wisdom. We pray specifically help us lead and serve our churches. Uh, and we know that lay elders, all elders, staff elders, lay elders are gifts that you give to the church. Um, is not something we can manufacture or microwave, and yet you give these gifts through means, ordinary means of discipleship and so many of the meditations and teachings that we've had uh, the last few days together. 
So we're grateful, but we ask, would you do it uh, yet again in this session? Would you give us time? Would you give me grace uh, to be helpful and serve these brothers, to encourage them? I pray especially and uniquely uh, just in conversations, hearing burdens uh, and the difficulty of pastoring uh, and, and some of the burdens on the hearts of the men in this room. I pray uniquely, would you give this, uh, this time together to, to give sweet encouragement, especially to those who are discouraged. Praise Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, again, as Nate said, uh, this is going to be mainly practical. So this is, uh, you've received a lot of really, really good content uh, and teaching. Uh, I'll do a couple little things here and there with the scriptures, but mainly just want to turn some of our attention and the teaching we've had and particularly apply it to raising up lay elders. So not just residents, not just interns, not just planters we'd send out, but what does it look like to think about these same things, but apply it to the conversation of raising up lay elders in the church. And if you just look at the outline there, you know, first I just want to celebrate uh, the fact that lay elders really are. Ephesians 4, all elders are a gift given by God to the church. Uh, so it's up to God how many lay elders he would give to us, not up to us. Yet we're called to be faithful in instruments that he would use to do that and in that process. Uh, but, but lay elders are a great gift to the church. I think specifically, I think about the long-term stability of a local church if she has good lay elders. Um, that if God calls uh, the kind of lead staff pastor or some of the other staff pastors to other ministries, other locations, or God forbid something happens, uh, just the health and the sweet gift it is to a local church to have lay elders that will keep shepherding and caring for her uh, during transitions of staff leadership. Uh, so lay elders are a really, really sweet gift uh, to, the, to the church. It also is a really sweet gift to the church because it gives vision, I think, to plenty of young men in the church that might not uh, at first aspire to being an elder. Because they see different pictures of what it looks like to be a pastor or shepherd in the church and think, wait a minute, I don't, I don't have to just aspire to be the guy who's in the pulpit week in and week out doing most of the preaching and teaching. I could be a shepherd or pastor in this church. And I see these examples from these lay elders of what, how they do that. How do they balance life and job and vocation, marriage and parenting, and yet still be a pastor in the church? So again, I think it's a gift to the church in that it can, prevent, it can provide long-term stability even through staff transitions but also and that it gives more men the opportunity to look and see examples that they could aspire to and be like and might therefore even create aspiration in brothers that, that didn't have it before. But lay elders are also a sweet gift to the elder board itself. So I think there's a uniqueness to having lay elders at the table who live a, if you will, normal lifestyle, who work a full-time job, have a wife, have children, and long to serve the church. I think staff elders are super helped by lay elders' perspective on shepherding the flock, who all have normal jobs and are trying to serve the church in the little free time that they have. And so having that perspective of men at the table who are working an 8 to 5, a 9 to 5, a, you know, whatever their hours are, and shepherding and thinking like a pastor, but experiencing the life of their, helps you, I think, be more gentle as a staff pastor when people don't show up to some of the meetings that you have at the church and you're discouraged. Why would they not come to this? Like sometimes our lay elders can offer perspective on and help us to be more gentle and, and forgiving and patient even with the members of our church. So I think it can be a great gift to the elder board in that way that it helps you see and think well about shepherding your flock. I also think it's a great accountability to staff elders to see the work a lay elder puts in outside of the church and with their free time to put in that extra grind to help love and serve the church. So it's hard to be lazy uh, as a staff elder and maybe complain about how much work you're putting in when you get a text message uh, from one of your lay elders yesterday, this happened. We had an elders meeting last night I had to zoom in uh, for. And one of the lay elders sends a message to the guys, hey guys, today I'm protecting the vice president while she's in North Carolina 
but I think I'll make it to the elders meeting on time. So I'll be there probably right on time, maybe a few minutes late. You know, and it's like, okay, well, yeah, amen. You're, you're serving, you're kind of on the SWAT and, and the SBI, and, and you're showing up, and I've got no excuse to show up late and unprepared uh, to this meeting uh, from Top Golf, uh, nonetheless. <laughs> so, uh, so again, I think, but I do, I think that the gift of lay elders to the, to the staff elders, is it, it, there's a built-in accountability. Like this brother I'm talking about works even two jobs within his one job, and then coaches a little bit at the gym because the one job, even though it's incredible work, doesn't pay him very much. His wife teaches and works a full-time job, and he's an incredible elder at our church. And so that holds me accountable to, again, I, 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 won't, I don't want to neglect my family. I don't want to neglect rest that God uh, you know, has, has given to us as gift, as a gift. But also, I don't want to be perceived by those lay elders as lazy. And there's a built-in accountability in having those kind of men, uh, a gift to the elder board. But also, particularly, I think, to a lead pastor. Lay elders can be a really, really good gift. Now, they could also be a thorn in the flesh. We'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. But, but could, is a really sweet gift. You can have safe, normal friendship with lay elders if you have the right lay elders on the, on, on the team. Where it's like, no, this is actually a relationship where my wife and I can spend time with them. We can smoke a brisket. We can get together. The kids can play in the yard. And we can just be normal Christians. We can just be normal Christians. And I can, I can receive sweet, normal friendship. Uh, in those ways. And, and even yesterday at this, uh, at our elders meeting, particularly last night, I got a long uh, email yesterday, uh, kind of concerning situation at the church and a really, really complex marital complexities and trauma and just lots of pain. And, and in some of this eight page letter, uh, there were some, some just, yeah, accusations uh, and, and critiques. And that was really painful. Uh, but last night at the, at, the, at the elders meeting, one of the lay elders prayed for me specifically. Sweet encouragement uh, in that. Then this morning, I woke up, another one of the lay elders sent me a text. Hey, man, I'm really grateful for your leadership in our church. Uh, just sweet friendship and encouragement, particularly to me, uh, to have those brothers, you know, giving that encouragement. And then also to bring a little humor uh, and laughter to your life. So Luke uh, is one of those lay elders. Luke, um, Kevin sent me the assignment for the content of this message and said, hey, we want you to talk about how to raise up guys like Luke Vandal. Um, and it's ironic, he said that, Luke doesn't know that, but Luke sent me this text this morning, and he said, uh, here's the outline for your talk on raising up lay elders. Intro, there's no such thing as a lay pastor, you're either laity or you're a pastor. But then he said, raising up non-staff pastors in four easy steps. Number one, ask them to help you with manual labor, i.e. moving a couch. So when he was a college student and first come to Christ after I spoke at a retreat, uh, he remembers one of the first things I asked him to do was to, to move some furniture. Then he says, number two, ask them to do something crazy, like move to a small town where they know no one, like move to Lincoln, North Carolina, and help revitalize a church. And he said, number three, wait five years. Number four, if they say yes to numbers one and two, and they are qualified, recommend them to the congregation. There's your talk. It's over. <laughs> Done. <clears throat> but again, like that, a lay elder can bring forth a unique gift to the, to the, to the particularly to the lead pastor, and just, just encouragement uh, and friendship and even laughter and joy in that way. So again, they can be a great gift, but let's talk a little bit specifically about looking for lay elder candidates. What, what, as pastors, as staff pastors, what does it look like? What are we after looking for lay elder candidates? My challenge to you, I think in the notes there, just says, lead with a shepherd's heart and a scout's eyes. A shepherd's heart and a scout's eyes. And this is what I mean. I, I love sports. Um, and, and particularly, I love uh, recruiting and building teams. And um, I'm the dude who played Madden uh, video games growing up. I played Madden. I actually never played the game. I would simulate the season just to do the offseason, just to rebuild a roster. So kind of a weird geek situation that I didn't actually play video games. I played video games to build rosters. It's 
It's terrible. Um, and, uh, but for me, there is this, I just love scouting talent and thinking about putting people in new positions to where the team would thrive. And so from a video game to playing sports growing up to leading as a pastor, my plan was to always to be a, a football coach and a teacher. Um, that, was, that was my plan. And so I pastor as a coach. Like, that's how I think uh, in, in how I pastor. And so for me, part of coaching is you're always scouting out talent. You're seeing, man, what are they good at? What are the skills they have? And how could they serve the team? And so that's my challenge to you is, as a pastor, you ought to always be looking with a shepherd's heart. So again, we don't, we'll talk. We don't want to create a performance culture and people jumping through hoops. But I'm always have my eyes open looking for the gifts maybe that would be there. C.S. Lewis, you guys know, have, have kind of famously said, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. I would say to you, there are no ordinary members. You've never talked to a mere member in your church. God has... Grace was given to each one of them according to the measure of Christ's gift, Ephesians 4, 7. And gifts were given to them so that they might play their unique role as he advances the gospel through the church, the manifold wisdom of God on display, even to angels and demons as they look in and see what God is doing in his redemptive purposes in this world. God has given you members that he's also given spiritual gifts to serve as he advances this redemptive work. And you don't have just mere members. You have people purchased by the blood of Christ and equipped with gifts by the Holy Spirit. So you should, ought to always be looking, what, what has the Spirit given to these individual brothers and, and sisters in our church? But particularly thinking about lay elders, what brothers, what are the gifts he's given? I want to see them. I want to encourage them. I wanna, but I'm always, every interaction I'm having as a pastor, I'm looking. Always scouting. Now again, with a shepherd's heart, but always looking. God has given them gifts. And at minimum, he's called them to use those gifts to bring him glory and honor in the most mundane of activities. Whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. So as a shepherd, I want to shepherd them to use those gifts to bring him glory and honor, no matter what they're doing. But I'm particularly looking as a shepherd for, could there be some shepherding gifts there as they do that? Could they be in a season like Moses in Midian for 40 years shepherding sheep where God is preparing to do some redemptive work and him to be a shepherd of God's sheep? Like as I'm watching them, I'm trying to make these observations as a scout. And I would just challenge you, you must always be looking through the eyes of optimistic faith. You'll never raise up leaders if you're pessimistic. You just won't. Pastoral ministry is too difficult. There's going to be too much pain. There's going to be too many disappointments. There's going to be too many two steps forward, seven steps back. And if you're pessimistic and you're looking uh, around for other brothers, you're not going to raise guys up. There must be an optimistic faith. It's realistic. We understand depravity. We understand brokenness. But we know our God is a good God who saves, transforms sinners, and equips them for the work he's called them to do. So you must have optimistic faith. If, if not, you'll, you'll stop developing uh, leaders and potential elders. Now, I don't often do this in any teaching uh, opportunities, but I do have a video for you this morning in order to kind of demonstrate what I'm saying, and I hope to stir in you optimistic faith. Um, so the, the video you're going to see uh, first is of a brother named Tim. Now, Tim um, heard, um, Tim was in jail, and we got a jail ministry in Greensboro, and he started watching our sermons on the tablets in jail, and, and kind of start, watched all of them. And our worship leader, Jonathan, is the chaplain of the jail. <clears throat> and uh, so he ended up having a conversation with Jonathan. He's like, wait a minute, you go to King's Cross? And he said, yes. He's like, I've watched every sermon y'all have on, on the tablets, and I've got questions. I'm around all these Muslims. I don't think Muslims have the true God. I want to be a Christian. How can I be a Christian? Jonathan led him to faith. Uh, he got out of jail, um, came to our church immediately. And from day one, he walked up the first Sunday and said, Pastor Clint, I want to join the church right now. I'm like, well, well the, the service is over and it doesn't quite work like that. So I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're excited. Um, 
but man, let's have some conversations. So he went to our membership class, went through a membership interview, and we had plenty of conversations. And I told the elders, I'm like, fellas, buckle up. Like Tim's got, like Tim literally was famous in Greensboro. Uh, all the cops knew him. They had arrested him so many times for basically hanging out uh, at different uh, restaurants, fast food restaurants, et cetera, for loitering mainly, and then drugs. And so he'd been arrested. He's got a very strange last name, Ben Thongstack is his last name. So all cops knew him because they're like, I know that name. I've arrested that guy several times. And, um, and he told me all this in his pastoral interview. So imagine the interview where you're hearing stories about, hey, I'm banned from most of the fast food restaurants in Greensboro. And, uh, and so he's telling me this in this interview, um, and we're having these conversations. And I told the guys, look, like he's, he's coming off heroin addiction, He's been sober for a year at this point, but, but buckle up. We're going to go on a roller coaster ride. But this, the Lord has saved us, brother, and, and we need to get to work and get ready of what it looks like. And so I want you to hear something from Tim, and then, and then we'll respond here. How's everybody doing? Um, God bless everybody. Um, my name's Tim. I was born in Kenston, North Carolina. I grew up in a Christian home. At a young age, I started using drugs and getting in trouble with the law. I was always told about God, but I never took it serious like I was supposed to. I went in and out of jail. Then I met my brother, Jonathan Solomon, and we talked about God in jail. I was always around a lot of Muslims. I was searching for the truth. I asked Jonathan, what do I have to do to be a Christian? He asked, why do I want to be a Christian? I told him, because the Muslim life didn't feel like the truth. And at that time, I knew I wanted to accept Christ as my Lord and Savior. First, I need to believe I'm a sinner and in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ, my brother. Jonathan taught me it's one thing saying it and another thing to believe it and let Jesus change my sinful desires and ways. It's a daily thing and it don't happen overnight. Let God work inside of me and when people see me, they see Christ. I have to fight my flesh daily and be a reflection of Christ. This is the start of a new life and a new journey. And as long as I keep God first, this life will never end and it will be forever. Oh, yeah. And ever since I gave my life to Christ, I ain't been to jail since. Um, I've been recovering now from drugs like a year. Got my own place. My mama got like me and her got the best relationship. We pray every night. Um... Yeah, God, good. So I show that to you again to say you got to look with optimistic eyes of faith. What if Tim became an elder one day? What a story. Like, what if he would go from that, which there's some good things and bad things in the details of how he shared his own story. Now, I'm, I regret to tell y'all, we, we buried Tim two weeks ago. And the, the roller coaster ride ended quickly. But what I would challenge you is if, as a pastor, you don't hear these stories and in your heart immediately think, what if? You'll stop raising up elders. You'll stop raising up leaders. You've got to see the Tims. You've got to hear the Tims. And even when you bury the Tims, keep believing. What if? What if, God, if you would raise up men like this to be elders? Who could they be? As you look at men, who think who could they be should God flex his sanctifying work in the ways that God can? If he fan into flame, or they fan into flame the gift of God that was within them, who could they be? How might God use them? Surely, again, Ananias, when God calls him to minister to Saul, is like, hold up, God, he's killing people. Like, I don't know. Like, are you sure? 
And God is patient with him, and he kind of goes back and forth, and is like, God, are you sure? And, and God repeats, no, go, lay hands. I'm going to show you how, him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Lays hands, the scales fall off, and Paul is Paul. And then Ananias, again, in this moment would think, like Paul? Like Tim? Again, you got to have eyes, optimistic faith, believing God can do this. And, and that stirs you in discouraging seasons to continue hoping, trusting, believing now flip to Matthew chapter 9, a popular text you guys have preached and taught plenty of times, but I do want to kind of just give you a quick framework uh, for uh, how this text helps me think about who, uh, I'm, I'm kind of as I'm scouting, who I'm looking for, what kind of men I'm looking for, uh, the Lord Jesus. Matthew 9, again, uh, a text you guys have preached plenty of times. Just want to point out a couple quick things. Matthew 9, verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then chapter 10, of course, he sends them out. Just a few things I want to uh, observe of what Christ does. So he says the harvest is plentiful. It's the laborers that are few. But in the process kind of just thinking quickly about the illustrations that are used. Open eyes, broken hearts, callous knees, beautiful feet. So Jesus looks at the crowds. He saw them. He looks upon them. He's, his eyes are open to the crowds. He sees what's going on. Open eyes. And he felt compassion. I think Greek, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correct, but splonknizomai. He had pain in his gut. So he looks upon sinners who are rebelling, mistreating even him, and he feels a pain, a compassion in his bowels, literally. So open eyes, then broken heart. Then he turns to his disciples almost as if it's like, yo, y'all see what I see? Like, do you see these people? And do you feel what I feel? Like, I'm looking at them. Are you looking? Are your eyes open too? Is your heart broken too? Do you feel what I feel? And then immediately, I like to get after it. So I'm like, yeah, let's go get to work. And he's like, pray. Callous knees. So don't go anywhere yet. <laughs> open eyes, broken heart, and then callous knees. And then chapter 10, he sends them out. Beautiful feet. Takes the good news of the gospel forward. So for me, when I'm looking for men, I'm scouting. I'm looking for men who have open eyes. Like, are they pay attention, paying attention to people's spiritual status? It, do they have broken hearts? Like, is there a compassion in them that I know they got from the Lord? The compassion the Spirit has worked in them to look upon the crowds and to feel what the crowds feel, or to feel what Christ feels. And again, God's not emotional. He doesn't change. I'm thinking, uh, again, he's gentle and lowly in heart. Gavin, you know, Orland's book, right? The, the, so he, he's, there's a compassion. There's a feeling. Do, does he have his eyes open? Is he broken heart? Is he a man who prays? Like he's on his knees. He's got callous knees. He's willing to pray and plead to God. He understands he can't go do anything about this. God, the Lord of the harvest, must. And then is he willing to have beautiful feet? Will he take God's word to God's people and then even to those who don't know God? Open eyes, broken heart, callous knees, and beautiful feet. Now, as kind of thinking about, that's, that's, I'm, that's kind of the intangible just DNA I'm looking for as I'm scouting. Do I see those things? But then also some, a whole bunch of C's because I'm a good Baptist. Um, and most of these, again, you've read in plenty of the Nine Marks books about raising up, looking for pastors, elders. So I'm going I'm to zip through these and just highlight a couple of things. And, and as elders, when we're having these conversations, thinking about potential elders, these are, we're thinking through these C's. And again, so much of the teaching you've already received, I'm going I'm to zip through these, point out a couple things. First and most importantly, I'm looking at his character. So I appreciated Bobby saying, you know, 1 Timothy 3, tell the guy to go study that and come back saying where he's, yes. So I'm assuming you guys have heard that, you know that, you, you would jump in. 
Titus 1, 5 through 9. But particularly with character, I'm paying attention to humility, transparency uh, at, at the outset. Is the man humble? Like, does he under, understand himself to be a sinner and a servant? <laughs> like, is he, does he understand, no, no, I just want to serve God, I don't want to serve people. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Y'all need me to clean the toilets, I'll clean the toilets. Like, whatever it takes, I just want to serve God in his church. So I'm looking for that humility, but also transparency. Like, is he a man who hides or is he a man who volunteers? Strengths and weaknesses, struggles and, like, success. Is he willing to open those things up and share? Is he transparent? And then, and then the thing that we regularly say among our elders in the church, and if he doesn't lead in anything else, does he lead in repentance? Is he a man who's quick to confess his sin, quick to ask for forgiveness, and, and quick to repent? Uh, and he's not hiding that. So when I'm thinking character, again, I'm assuming 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, we're all jumping in, we're thinking about that. But particularly, I'm trying to pay attention to humility, transparency, and is he willing to lead in repentance? Can he be a leader who watches his life and doctrine closely? And then when he fails in front of people as a shepherd, is willing to confess that failure, ask for forgiveness, and lead forward and demonstrate and show this is what it's like to be a faithful husband, a faithful father, a faithful pastor, is I lead you, but I'm not perfect. And so I'm willing to show my imperfections and confess them and ask for forgiveness and repent in front of you. So that's, that's what I'm thinking, character. Conviction, again, you guys know, he's got to love doctrine. He's got to love truth. He's got to care about truth. He's got to have good theological instincts. And then I'm thinking, is he like-minded enough with the team of elders to lead with them, even as secondary and tertiary theological issues? So, of course, the primary, and of course, the secondary. But even in some of the nuances of the secondary, tertiary conversations that are going on, is there enough like-mindedness for him to come to the table and contribute to the table, work with the table, uh, and not be division among the table? Thirdly, competence. I'm just looking, is there fruit in his discipling, in his teaching, and in his encouraging with the word? Fourthly, compassion. And again, right here, I'm thinking about Matthew 9 and what we just said. And do I see that kind of compassion? Do I see him look at sinners and get angry at them for, being, for doing foolish things? Or do I see him look at sinners and say that's foolish and damaging to the glory of God to them and for the good of the church, and I want to help them? So I'm just trying to look. Is there that compassion? But also, how does he relate to the marginalized? How does, how does he relate to the weak, to the widows in the church? Does he care about widows? Does he care about the orphan? How does he interact with the children on Sundays when the children are running around and running to him after service? Like, is there a compassion in him that you see? Uh, will he catch and get and receive the blessings of the hovering member? <laughs> Y'all know what the hovering member is like after service, right? There's that, it's that member who's always hovering to talk to you, and you're like, like, I, like, do I, uh, like you're tempted to turn away, but then you have the conversation with the hovering member and there's one particularly that I have in my mind uh, who's a brother who's become just a sweet encouragement to me. And man, if, there, if, if I wasn't willing to have the conversations, I would have actually prevented myself from receiving the, the blessings of the encouragement he brings. Now, he's a hard time. He's, he's, he's elderly. He stammers a good bit. It's hard to hear what he's saying, and it takes a long time for him in the conversation out. But some of the sweetest, most encouraging letters have come in the mail from him to me. And just so, will he be the kind of man who has the compassion to not miss out on that blessing of that interaction with that brother who at first he wanted to avoid because those kind of encouragements will keep him going when it's difficult. So again, does he have that kind of compassion? Will he show up as a group of guys did early on in our plant? Miss Denise uh, was an elderly lady in function, a widow. And she was in a house and needed us to move out her couch because she had gotten uh, bed bugs everywhere. And it's like, man, we all, like, we go over there, and my wife particularly is like, this is like her kryptonite. 
So, I mean, super anxious about anything, potential bed bugs. So we all go over, and we've got to get this couch out of a room. And, uh, and essentially, we, I mean, it's a long story, but we had to saw the thing in half to get it out the door. And when we do that, bugs are everywhere. I mean, it's like terrible. So by the time we get the couch out, we have to haul it around. She's in a retirement home. We get it out, and we put it by the side of the road. Then all of us literally in the parking lot, uh, stripped down to our drawers, put our clothes in a bag, throw them in the trash to get in our vehicles and go home. So again, like, does he have the kind of compassion that says, I'm willing to do that for Miss Denise? <laughs> like, and yeah, I don't, maybe we could have got arrested for that. I don't know. But, like, <laughs> but will he have that? Like, is he willing to go serve Miss Denise in that way? And have the hard conversations with wifey saying, no, no, we've got to go help Miss Denise. Who else is going to help her? Like, again, is there that kind of compassion? Also, I'm thinking about capacity. Would pastoring this church undermine his ability to pastor his home? Because if so, then I want to serve that brother and, and not recruit him to the table. I want to encourage his aspirations. I want to encourage his thoughts and desires to serve. But if it's going to undermine his ability to shepherd his wife and his children and blow his marriage up, well, then he doesn't need to come to the table. So I'm thinking about his capacity, his life, his ability uh, to handle more tasks. And, and I want to have those conversations with him. And then lastly, uh, under that chemistry, will men at the table enjoy laboring and learning with him? Pastoring is hard. Elders meetings are hard. And there's some intense, hard conversations where brothers, because we love God and because we love his church, we want to do the right thing. Because we love his word, we want to do the right thing in a complex moment. And it gets tense. There's intense battles and conversations. This is going to be hard. We've got we've to be able to laugh together. We've got to be able to enjoy one another as we do this. And so to me, I think we could, we could almost feel like, oh, this is too, too worldly of a category. I don't think it's too worldly of a category. Like division at the elder table, I think, has caused more damage in churches and among brothers like us than anything else. So I'm thinking through how will he interact with the other elders? How will they interact with him? Will his being at the table bring unity and mission? Now, it doesn't mean we're all going to agree, not unanimity. We're, like, we're going to argue, and this is going to be tense, but there's going to be this, I love you, I care, and I'm even in the intensity of the conversation, I know we're trying to please God, we're trying to submit to his word, we're trying to serve our church, we're trying to be a faithful witness, and therefore we can go at it and us hug at the end and know, man, this is, this is hard. I'm glad to be doing it with you. So I'm thinking about, chemistry among that man. Thirdly, now let's talk about, so that's that, the scout's eyes. Those are the things I'm thinking about as I'm having these interactions and looking uh, at men in the church. Thirdly, let's talk about now equipping lay elder candidates. And I just want to run through just, again, these are just a couple practical things where I'm, I'm trying to make those observations. These are some of the categories where I'm trying to do that uh, and do this obviously with, with the elders. So first, intentionality with, with plurality. Um, let me just confess, I don't think it's wrong. So again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be the language police, as Bobby was saying. I don't like the language of first among equals. Like, I don't like the language. Because like, inherently, it undermines the, the goal of plurality. Like, in function, I understand Paul wrote, wrote to Titus. He wrote to Timothy. There's going to be one who leads, and I think that's a good and right thing, and that's fine. So I'm fine. my title at the church is lead pastor. I'm fine with the title senior pastor. But I think when we use the language sometimes of first among equals, it still communicates to our congregations that this guy's a little higher than them. And then I think it creates some, some difficulties that, that, that we don't want to create. So I don't like the language, though the function of it I understand and, and I'm okay with. But I would just say, as you do plurality, be intentional. I think it's really important in equipping lay elder candidates to show, like, we all legitimately this plurality. Like, I don't have, like, this unique communion with God. They don't have, and therefore they follow me. Say, <laughs> so, no, no, they've commissioned me to lead, and so I lead. 
Like this team has said, this church has said, I'm called to lead us, and so I lead. But man, we are equal. So anything you can do with plurality in your church to demonstrate and communicate that plurality, I think that helps raise up lay elders. I think they're watching and seeing, oh, there's different roles to play in pastorate, in the pastorate, and therefore, man, I don't have to be just like that to be able to serve and lead. Man, there's different expressions of that, but they all have this. So I think if you think carefully about how you do plurality, it helps to create a culture, particularly the personal discipling relationships of the elder board. So I think elders need to be discipling the right men, even the lay elders. So if they've got small capacity, make sure they're giving their time to the right men. (laughs) Make sure they're giving their time discipling men who could be at the table with them, men who could learn from them how do you serve the church while also being a faithful father and husband. So I think that's the first spot I'm thinking about is who are my, all the elders on our team, who are they discipling? They need to be the kind of men we have our eyes on and are thinking and considering. Also, again, for us, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more on the panel, but the pastoral residency that we do. So we've got a two-year residency. We give the guy $1,500 a month um, and free housing, and either he's bivocational or fundraising, depending on the circumstance. So we kind of do that case to case. So we've got this brother. This is a way we're developing uh, potential elders, period. Um, and in some of that, it could turn into him being a lay elder. It could turn into him to be a staff elder. We hope in those cases for it eventually to be a, a planter or staff elder. But also, if we do a residency and a brother becomes a faithful lay elder, that's fantastic. So we've got our residency. Um, we have an Aspire internship uh, that we'll talk, I'm sure, more about in detail on the panel as well. Uh, but on Monday nights, so we have four semesters, similar to what Pastor Dwayne uh, talked about, similar content even to what Open Door does. But for four semesters over a two-year period, our pastoral resident goes to this, but it's not just for the pastoral resident. We have lay guys at the church, lay members of the church, every other Monday night come together. We read books, we write papers, we have discussions. We, we uh, go through the pastoral epistles with them during that time, and, and we begin to teach them. What I love about doing this is it creates a culture for them to grow and develop and learn. I'm scouting, we're watching, we're discerning. Now, if they end up being faithful Christians, praise God. Like, I'm glad now they're going to think better about the church. <laughs> So we're going to spend the first semester talking about delighting in God and making sure their communion with Christ uh, is what leads their life in ministry. We're going to talk ecclesiology. We're going to talk about roles of elder and deacon kind of in that second semester. Third semester, we're going to do some biblical counseling, some preaching. Fourth semester, we're going to think about mission, and particularly for us, multi-ethnic, uh, multi-generational church. So that's, we're kind of covering those things. And man, if, if he just is a member in our church but thinks well about all those things, he's going to be more fruitful as a Christian, and it's going to be healthier for our church. But also, some of those brothers end up being deacons or ministry leaders. Well, great, praise God, then, then they're equipped to do that. But in the midst of that, it's also equipping guys who may become lay elders at our church. And they're having to give a night of their week every other week. We have elders meetings every other week. So they're, they're doing the very things they'll have to do. They're going to be willing to study and read and shepherd and think through complex things. So what we're doing in that class is actually setting them up to be a lay elder should they be gifted and the Lord call that to happen. So again, I'm, we're, we're used that means uh, to do that. Uh, to equip uh, those guys at prayer services, small groups, members meetings, um, in all the ministry leaders, any teaching opportunities. I'm, again, I'm recruiting. Open eyes, broken heart, callous knees, beautiful feet. I'm looking for those things. I'm thinking through those seeds. Do I see those things in this brother? Our pastoral assistants, uh, kind of the work they're doing, I'm paying t- attention to those things. So I'm just trying to give you the context where I'm looking with those scouts' eyes uh, at our particular church. I think sharing the pulpit is really, really important in this. Um, I don't preach as often, honestly, as I would like to. Um, even only year four in the church, and even last year, year three, I only preached 30, 32 times. Um, God has given our church an unusual amount of men who are really gifted preachers. Uh, and I just feel like it's poor, 
stewardship, not to give the pulpit up a good bit to those men <laughs> and, uh, and have those conversations with those men. And, and in the earliest days of our church, God has been kind. I don't think every church has to do that in that way, but, but what the Lord has done. Um, and again, what that does is it demonstrates and models different kinds of preaching. So the same expositional commitments, the same walking through the text, but different personality and delivery uh, in how some of that. So, so different brothers get to see different styles of preachers with the same biblical convictions on how to preach. That creates, again, aspirations in young men to say, wait a minute. And even for me, my experience uh, in, uh, I was in with Campus Outreach uh, in the PCA. So D. Russ and I were like the undercover Baptists uh, for a while. And then eventually I uh, just had to, yeah, no longer be undercover. Um, and, and in the midst of that, um, I remember thinking and having conversations with those brothers. They, they had kind of convinced me I would never be a senior pastor. And they, and they didn't mean, mean to necessarily. There was a man, you're really compassionate, really good with people. We assume you're going to be, and you're super evangelistic. So either you're going to be an outreach pastor or you can be like a family counseling type pastor. But Clint, you're not the dude who loves to study 25 hours a week. And, uh, you know, like they had in their mind, there's one kind of senior pastor. And it's, uh, it's a dude who, uh, I think even in their mind, and I mean this to be friendly, but like he doesn't have very many interpersonal relationship skills at all. He just stays in his study and preaches great sermons, but he's not very good with people. And I'm like, well, if that's what a senior pastor is, you're right. I'm not that. I don't, like, I'm not a geek. I, like, I need, I'm the football dude, and y'all got to hold me accountable and make sure I study. Like, okay, I guess I'll never be a lead pastor. And then I went and did the internship with, with uh, Tony, Nate and Tony Damago Day, and my interactions with Tony, I'm like, wait a minute. Mine and your backstory is very similar. I come from a blue-collar family, first one to go to college. I didn't naturally like reading books. I only like reading books to help me know God and love people. <laughs> so I don't just geek out. Like, if, you know, if it's like you got some free time, you, you know, what do you want to do? I just want to read books. That's not me, naturally. I want to play Madden. <laughs> you know, like, it's, and so then I had this, like, I don't think I, I can be a pastor, I guess. But then suddenly I get around Tony. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, we're more similar. And I do love to read books now because they help me know God and love people. But it's not naturally who I, but man, I, I see an example now of the kind of pastor I could be if God called me to be a pastor. So I just think it's really important. So when you're, when you're modeling for people uh, in sharing the pulpit and, and, and different leadership responsibilities, you're helping guys know, wait a minute, that's the kind of man God has wired me up to be, and I could be a pastor like that. So you give them those opportunities. Um, your, second, your prayer services, we have a second Sunday service every, uh, on, on the second Sunday of the month, and we have a prayer service. I'm paying attention to the brothers who are praying in those services. You can see and discern lots of those gifts in, in those prayers, how he thinks about the word, how he prays. There's, there's, a, there's a unique moment captured in those moments I'm observing there. So let me conclude. I've gone over my time, but don't worry. We're, not, we're, we're skipping the discussion portion uh, and going to the panel. Uh, let me conclude with just a few pitfalls to, to encourage you brothers to avoid in identifying and equipping lay candidates, uh, and then we'll, we'll have the panel. So first, confusing gifting with godliness. Now, you guys all know these stories and examples, so I don't need to give you much, but you know the guys who are like super gifted, super talented, super smart, and they're just not very godly, and, and there's some entitlement. Uh, so that's, that's primarily what I have in mind. Be careful not to confuse giftedness with godliness. But I also want to look at it from the opposite direction. So when I went to Freedom Church in Lincolnton, where, where Michael is now the senior pastor, lead pastor there, uh, I got there, and, uh, and I love those brothers. I love that church. It was kind of a dying church plant situation, so it was revital plant, if you will. Um, and, uh, and I got there, and just to be frank with you, there was a, like, I just need to make sure the elders are Christians. Like, first, that's the first goal. Let's make sure they're, they're Christians. And, uh, and it was questionable for a little bit uh, to, to land that plane. Um, and the church was planted out of a split. It was an unhealthy situation. And basically, the deacon, and, and it was a church that pushed the elder conversation too fast, split the church, half the church left, 
and the deacons just became elders and had no idea what an elder was. And so that's kind of the situation I stepped into. Senior pastor's marriage fell apart. It was really sad. Um, I showed up as a rookie and realized this past summer on sabbatical, a decade later, the first elders meeting I ever went to, I was leading it, um, which I don't commend as a wise practice uh, for that to be your first elders meeting. But, and that was kind of the scenario, making sure they're Christians. And in the midst of all that, I remember there was one brother in particular that I thought, why is he an elder? He shouldn't be here. But I was also trying to figure out, okay, what, like, are they Christians? Also, are any of them gifted and, and able to do this work? Um, and, and I remember we were having, we were just studying through the pastoral epistles. And I just write the verse out on the board for, before the elders meeting. And we just do observations. We just inductive Bible study method. And I just wanted to hear how these brothers thought about the Bible. And that's how we'd start every elders meeting. They, they would last forever. And one of the brothers who I kind of written off in my mind, I'm like, he's not, he's kind of awkward socially. And I just kind of written him off. Anytime we were talking about the Bible, I would always kind of be, he would say something and I would kind of turn around like, good night. I didn't assume that was in there. Like, and so I had in my mind, I had just kind of confused gifting and godliness. Gifting in that your relational gifting, I think, is probably off. But man, when the Bible was being talked about, I'm like, man, he might be the most qualified dude in the room. <laughs> you know, and so just be careful that, that you don't, again, assume certain gifts and ignore ungodliness. But also don't, don't neglect and fail to see really godly men um, and, and, and not see them. And then also kind of with that is, is similar, confusing culture with competence. Brothers, I just want to say uh, to this room, and, and I say this as, as um, a loving brother who loves this room, and I love our circles. I'm super, super grateful. But I think our, cultural, our culture influences application of biblical convictions far more than we realize. So I think there are cultural things that we assume, if you have this biblical conviction, that's how you apply it. And I'm like, maybe. But I think our culture influences that. And this is some, some of what I mean, um, is I think if we're not careful, like highly intellectual, really, really intellectually sharp, rigorous, always studying and reading and highly educated kind of culture, which is, praise God for that, could make us see a guy that might be biblically qualified, but we assume he's not because he doesn't fit our culture. Yet Acts 4.13 talks about the brothers as untrained, ordinary men who had been with Jesus. So I think my warning to us is you may immediately write some guys off accidentally because they don't fit a particular culture. Don't do that. <laughs> like, don't confuse culture with competence. There might be competence there. You might just be confused about some of the cultural piece. So be careful with that. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not going to do the video. I've gone over too much. I was going to give you another video, but we won't do that for now. Next, uh, creating a performance culture. So be careful in all of your scouting. And I hinted at this at the beginning. Be careful in all of that. That, that, that there's not a culture in your church where training is hoop jumping. Where all of your training, guys realize you're just scouting me to see if I'm qualified to be an elder. Disciple men who aren't going to be elders and love it just the same. <laughs> and let that be clear. My goal is to help you be godly and discover what gifts God has given to you and do whatever God's called you to do. If that's being an elder, praise God. If not, praise God. So don't create this culture where, where brothers are around you and they're performing for you because they think they're jumping through hoops to see if, if they're qualified. Um, and, and I would even say in some of your training, again, don't just limit to aspiring elders. This can be counterintuitive, but even our aspire, uh, the brother of the video I was going to show you, Desmond. Uh, Desmond uh, grew up in the streets, uh, lived in New York, had a pretty incredible testimony 30 years ago, seven kids, incredible family, hero father at our church, African-American guy who uh, loved going into the jail, sharing his faith, and through the jail ministry actually heard about our church and came and 
Uh, and it was interesting because I asked him, did he want to be a part of Aspire? Now, he drives a trash truck in the city, and he's like, oh, pastor, I ain't no pastor. I'm not, uh-uh, I, don't, I'm, I ain't a pastor. I'm like, Desmond, you go teach the Bible in the jail, and you have been for years. You're as good a father shepherding your children as I've ever seen. Like, you, you're, you're discipling and teaching them the word. Every time you open your mouth, every young man in this church, like, leans in and can't wait to hear what you have to say because of the wisdom you, like, I think you think you're not a pastor, but uh, you might be. Like, you may have, you know, nah, pastor, that ain't me. Okay, but how about this? You just come to Aspire for the next two years just to help you be better at the jail ministry. All right, I'll do that. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> you know, and, and but, but there, there are brothers like that that I would just say, be, like, be looking for them. So don't, don't, don't create just a performance culture that you have to be an elder. Say, okay, but I still want you to come. I still want you to be develop, developed, even if that's to be a deacon or ministry leader. Be careful also among your staff uh, and lay elders. This is why Luke made the joke at the beginning to, to not create a JV versus varsity culture. So I think think through your pastoral prayer, think through the Lord's Supper, think through preaching, think through your members' meetings, and think about how you're using plurality and making sure. So I would say often at members' meetings, uh, somehow I, get, I end up getting made fun of. Like our faith family meetings are this sweet, like it feels like, a, we call them faith family meetings. Like it just feels like our faith families together. And I get made fun of in some way, shape, or form when we're doing updates on the pastoral interviews. And what it does, is, like it demonstrates to the church there's a camaraderie and health among these elders, and there's a real plurality, and they really all view each other as equal. So there's no JV kind of varsity distinction. So your language, how you interact, how you think about who do, does what roles, be careful not to create a JV varsity culture. Uh, be careful not to create a favoritism culture. I think you got to be wise with that. It's, it's difficult. I think you should have friends. I think you should enjoy those friends in your church. So pastors, some of the, you know, pastors can't have friends in the church. I think that's utter nonsense. You're a Christian. <laughs> like you should have friends in the church, but be careful that you're not creating favoritism that discourages other folks in the church. So have wisdom in that. And then lastly, don't move too quickly. Uh, again, I, I've seen more pastor friends hurt deeply by moving too quickly and bringing uh, an elder to the table they shouldn't have brought to the table. And, and, and those are the most painful conversations I have and burdens I have for pastor brothers. And, uh, and I would tell y'all, I'm very tempted to do it. So BT, our executive pastor, is very slow. He and I argue about this stuff all the time. But I'm really grateful for him because I would make errors and bring brothers on way too fast. And he always helps me slow down uh, and not do that. And I always help him speed up because if it was up to him, we would never have any other elders forever. And so we, like, we, you know, we, there's this tension between us, but both of us recognize, man, I really need you. And, and this tension is good for us and it's good for our church. So let's keep having the tension. Let's keep helping each other. So don't move too quickly, but also don't move too slowly. Don't make your standards to be an elder higher than the Bible standards. Um, that would be foolish. Um, and so don't, don't, don't move too quickly, but don't move too slowly. Let me, let me pray and close this, uh, and then we'll go to the panel time. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for equipping uh, us to equip saints for the work of ministry. We pray particularly would you give us help doing that in raising up lay elders. Give us wisdom. Forgive us when we err. Uh, and give us grace even now as we talk. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, baptist21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.